It's a privilege to be with my friend Stephen Davey again. I have learned more from him as a senior pastor of the Colonial Baptist Church than I ever taught him in the classroom. It's also a privilege to learn about the progress of the Shepherd's Theological Seminary and of the ministry of the elders, deacons, and multiple staff, and also the growth of spiritual growth of the congregation. I would like to speak on the subject of grace that conquers, and our text is found in the book of Romans, in the first eight chapters, chapter 1 through chapter 8, and I'm reading for our scripture lesson from the first chapter, verses 1 through 6. So please turn to chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. In these first eight chapters in the book of Romans, we have at least two questions that are asked and two questions that are answered. The first question is, how can I get to heaven? And the second question asked is, how can I live a life of victory from day to day? There is no way that one can live a life of victory apart from grace any more than one can get to heaven apart from grace. What do we know about this grace? Well, according to the third chapter in verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In these moments, I would like to speak about the bridge, justification by faith. This bridge is important. We note four things about this bridge. The first thing that we note is the architect. Who is the architect, the framer, the one who built this magnificent bridge. Turn to the 8th chapter of the book of Romans and verse 32. Chapter 8, verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifies There's the answer. The architect of this bridge is none other than God himself. He is the source of grace. He is the author of grace. He is the one who justifies. He is the one who makes righteous. It is not of man, not at all. Not a priest or a preacher or a rabbi or a philosopher or a theologian. It is God himself. If I did not believe this, I would quit the ministry. I would have left long ago. 
What else is true about this bridge? This bridge has an architect. This bridge has an anchor. Again, we quote the verse, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In this verse, we find the word redemption. What does that mean? That is a profound word. It means to buy back, to purchase. You and I were slaves in the marketplace of sin. We were out in the fields of iniquity with a whiplash of the law over us. And our blessed Redeemer, Jesus Christ, came into this world, paid the price to deliver us from the fields of sin. In Northern California, there is rather a distinguished bridge called the Golden Gate Bridge, which stands between San Francisco County on the south and Marin County on the north, which some of you have looked upon and some of you have visited. This bridge, its pristine beauty, can be seen from either side and from Baker Beach. It was built by a man by the name of Joseph B. Strauss, who in his college days, as a college student, said, I'm going to do something great. I'm going to do something big in life. He was rather diminutive in stature and wanted to make up for it in other ways. Unfortunately, he passed away 11 months after the bridge was completed in 1937. This bridge has a span of 4,200 feet. That is 1,000 feet short of a mile in distance. On either side of the bridge, there is a huge cable, 36 and a half inches in diameter, which holds up the weight of that bridge and the many vehicles that pass over there each day. This bridge has two towers, one on the north side, one on the south side. They are the highest bridge towers in the world. They extend 745 feet above the water and pierce the sky as though they were spires. These towers rest upon anchors that go down into the water and down into the bedrock that is found in Northern California. This keeps the bridge from swaying back and forth. This bridge that we speak of here in the book of Romans rests squarely upon anchors being justified freely by His grace. We have redemption through Jesus Christ. This bridge rests squarely upon Calvary, upon the outpouring of the blood of Christ, which takes away the sin of the world. We love to sing the songs of redemption. I love the song redeemed. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy. His child forever I am. Well, insofar as I'm concerned, as long as I can speak, as long as I can stand on my feet, as long as I can talk, I'm going to teach about redemption. There is a version of the Bible which is read by many people which has eliminated completely the word redemption. It is the Bible, good news for modern man. We need to hang on to that. We need to believe in this and to teach this. Well, what else is true about this bridge? This bridge has an architect. This bridge has an anchor. And this bridge has assurance. It will not fall. It is secure. It will not collapse. It will not crash. Look at the fourth chapter of the book of Romans. 
and verse 24 and 25. The fourth chapter, verse 24. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and raised for our justification. He was raised from the dead for your justification to make you righteous. Did you know that? When one treads upon a bridge, it is very important that the bridge is safe, that it will not collapse and crash. And here is our assurance that the bridge justification by faith is secure, that it will not collapse, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised for our justification. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the assurance and the guarantee by the Father that his Son is truly the Son of God. A few moments ago we read from the first chapter in the fourth verse which says, And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is the seal of the Father's approval upon the identity of His Son. He truly is the Son of God. Furthermore, the resurrection of Christ from the dead is the guarantee that we ourselves, all of us here who are Christians, will be raised from the dead. John the Apostle, writing in one of his epistles, says something like this. It does not appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, that is, when Christ shall come, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is almost identical and akin to what is found in the 8th chapter of Romans and verse 11. The 8th chapter, verse 11. If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. These bodies of humiliation will be transformed. They will be resurrected and be like unto his glorious body. Paul teaches this in the book of Philippians when he tells us, that our citizenship is in heaven. We do not belong to this world. We are otherworldly. And he adds, we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. We shall be raised. We shall be resurrected. It's interesting to read the life of Christ, particularly in the Gospels, and his post-resurrection appearances. He went with his disciples down to the Sea of Galilee, and there he ate breakfast. This he did with his resurrected body. With that body, he walked through a locked door, he counteracted the force of gravity, and was taken up into heaven from the Mount of Olives. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he cried out, It is finished! Salvation is complete! A few moments ago, we spoke of the Golden Gate Bridge, which was erected in the early 1930s in Northern California. 
Do you know that there were 23 men that lost their lives in the building of that bridge? Somehow they fell off the scaffolding or lost their footing and went right straight down 185 feet and hit the water as though it were concrete. Those who built the bridge decided that they needed a safety device, a safety net. And so they built a safety net that cost $100,000. Ten men fell into that safety net and ten men's lives were saved. But the Golden Gate Bridge was not always safe. But this bridge that is spoken of here in the book of Romans, the bridge justification by faith is safe. It will never crash. It will never, never collapse. What is true about this bridge? This bridge has an architect. This bridge has an anchor. This bridge has assurance, but there remains a fourth crucial question that we must ask, and the question is this. Is there access to this bridge? Can I get on this bridge? Can I go to heaven on this bridge? The important, crucial, personal, immediate question is, how may I, as a guilty sinner, be justified before God and live with Him throughout the eternal ages of time? question is, how can I get to heaven? And the answer is found in one verse, in one striking verse in the third chapter of Romans in verse 28. It's always been difficult for me to understand why the cults and why there are so many people who argue as to how to get to heaven. This verse states, therefore, we conclude that man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Therefore, we conclude that man is justified by faith. He is pronounced as righteous. He is proclaimed as righteous. He is declared as righteous. He is welcomed as righteous. This leads me to say, if I were a Mormon, I would not attend a Mormon church. If I were a Catholic, I would not attend a Catholic church. If I were a Jehovah's Witness, I would not spend time at Kingdom Hall. If I were a liberal, I would not attend any of their churches because each of these believe that we get to heaven by works. But the Scripture says that we get there by grace through faith alone. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, apart from grace. In my hands, no price I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. The second question that is asked in the book of Romans is, how can I live a life of victory from day to day? How can I be joyful and loving and lovable before my family, before my husband, before my wife, before my children, before my parents, before the people with whom I work, before the members of the church, before this unbelieving world? The answer to that question is found in three chapters. Chapter 6, chapter 7, and the first part of chapter 8. Paul shows us how to achieve a life of victory. 
Now, there's no way to achieve a life of victory apart from grace any more than we can get to heaven apart from grace. What do we know about this grace? Well, according to the sixth chapter and verse 14, we know this. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Perhaps you feel like the Apostle Paul, discouraged, defeated, downhearted. You know that Paul was a Christian when he wrote the seventh chapter of the book of Romans. And he tells as a Christian about his encounter with sin and his encounter with defeat. Look what he says in verse 11. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. And in the 18th verse he says, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me. And to perform that which is good I find not. Perhaps you are saying to perform that which is good I just can't find it. We cannot achieve victory through the flesh. We cannot gain victory through resolutions, through New Year's resolutions. We cannot gain victory through ourselves. Not at all. So the dilemma is, how can I live a Christian life victoriously? How can I live joyfully with loving attitude towards my family and to those that are not my family? Paul tells us the answer in the sixth chapter he says, first of all, that we have a position, a spiritual position. And he proves that in the sixth chapter. When we become Christians, we become in Christ. He uses the words death, burial, crucifixion. Death, burial, crucifixion. Notice the third verse. Know ye not? That so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. And verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So we have these words, death, burial, crucifixion. And over against them the words resurrection and newness of life and similar words. For example, observe the last part of verse 4. Like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. And in verse 5, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So we have these words, death, burial, crucifixion, over against them, resurrection and newness of life. What does Paul mean? What is he saying here? What is he telling us? What is he teaching us? He means that we have a position, a spiritual position. We're dead with him. We're buried with him. We are raised with him. Well, you ask, what does it mean? Many times I've read this, you say, and it's just not clear to me, these, these passages. What do they mean? 
Paul means that when you were saved, not only were your sins washed away, not only did you receive the imputed righteousness of Christ, not only were you justified before a holy God forever, but you received a position, a spiritual position, a union with Christ. You were linked to him and bound to him and united with him. And this, Paul says, is the theological basis for our victory. So he says, you have a position, this union with Christ. And this position determines your practices, your behavior, your conduct. Paul declares this, for example, in Colossians 3.1, when he uses the expression, risen with Christ. If then you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Our position determines our behavior, our conduct. Let me illustrate this. Suppose you were flying an airplane from Denver, Colorado to the Raleigh-Durham area, as I did the day before yesterday. When you are riding in that airplane, do you go to the pilot and ask, let me off on Fifth Avenue. I want to shop at Macy's. And then go out through the cabin door and begin to walk. Your position determines your practice. Listen. When we become Christians, we change our practices. And Paul illustrates this very gloriously in the 6th and 7th chapter in two illustrations. In the 7th chapter, in the opening verses, he illustrates this by marriage. But in the 6th chapter, he illustrates it through the emancipation of bondage. Beginning with verse 20. Let me read that verse in the following. For when you were servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But listen, now being free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. This is the illustration of emancipation from bondage. He's saying that when you were unsaved, you were in the bondage of sin. And since you have become a Christian, since you have accepted Jesus Christ, you have liberty and you are the servant of Christ. We have assumed a new position. And as a result of this new position, we have a new outlook. We have new ambitions and new desires and new passions and new direction and new goals, new friends. Things have changed. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Because our position determines our practices. Martin Luther was the great reformer of the 16th century who led the reformation that was found in, in Europe. He nailed his 95 Thesis to the church door of Wittenberg on All Saints' Eve in 1517. During this time, Luther was having trouble, having problems with the Catholic Church because he believed there was a disparity between what the church was teaching and what the Bible teaches. And so they told him to recant, cut out this foolishness, or we'll burn you at the stake in 60 days. 
Luther had to appear before Charles V, who was the reigning Roman Empire for, Emperor for 50 years during the 16th century, at the Diet of Worms in 1520. Prior to that time, Luther had written three booklets, and one of them was called On Christian Liberty, wherein he states that the Christian is the freest of all men because he is free from the bondage of sin and he is a servant of Jesus Christ with great liberty. And this is what he means when he writes in the fifth chapter of Galatians and verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Don't go back to those old ways. Don't go back to those old sins and to those old practices. We have this position in Christ, this wonderful mystical union, and therefore we change our practices and our behavior. So he says we have a position, union with Christ. This position determines the pattern of life, our behavior, our practices. Then he adds in the opening verses of the eighth chapter that it is all implemented by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit of God. Let me read those opening verses of chapter 8. There is therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, condemns sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Paul further develops this in his letter to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 16. Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You won't go back to those old ways and the old life that you've lived. And he further elaborates on this in his letter to the Ephesians. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. I like the NIV translation, be not drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be controlled by the Spirit. He's telling the Christians that they're to be led and guided by the Holy Spirit of God. And he uses common sense when he declares to them, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. So what is the summation of it all? Paul is teaching that when we yield to the Holy Spirit, we have daily victory in the daily processes of life. Furthermore, we have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, temperance, that is self-control. We have love, joy, peace in oneself. Patience, kindness, goodness to others. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control towards God. This is how we become victorious in our living. 
joyous, loving, lovable to our families and to those who are not our families. The first question that is asked in the book of Romans is, how can I get to heaven? We can only get to heaven by the grace of God over the bridge justification by faith. This bridge is over an abyss. This bridge is over a cataclysm. This bridge is over hell. Where there is spiritual darkness and where there is eternal chaos and tragedy, where there is no God, where there is no Christ, where there is no Holy Spirit, where there is no hope. Daniel writes, the prophet Daniel, many that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Then he gives the words of encouragement to all of us. They that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. The second question asked in the book of Romans in chapter 6, 7, and 8 is how can I live a life of victory? And Paul shows we have a spiritual position in Christ. This position determines our practices. This is a theological basis for daily victory, which is implemented by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Are you going to heaven? Do you live a life of victory day by day? There is a time we know not when, a place we know not where, that marks the destiny of man to glory or despair. Perhaps this is the time for you to make your decision this day, and perhaps this is the place. Will it be glory for you, or will it be despair? Our Heavenly Father, we pray that all of us will get to heaven at last, and that each of us may live the Christian life victoriously as we make this journey from the cradle to the grave and from earth to heaven. This we pray and ask in the name of Jesus Christ, the world's only Savior and man's best friend. Amen. Amen.